0: good to be here this evening. Our text is in Luke 7. It's great to be back in the south and in Memphis particularly. I know St. Louis is considered the Midwest, but it might as well be as north as it gets for me. So it's great to be here. There are nearly 7,000 known languages in the world. Out of 7,000 known languages, Almost 4,500 of those languages have no bits of Scripture at all. About 1,000 have some Scripture, and about 1,000 have just the New Testament. And only about 350 of those languages have the whole Bible in their own language. There are about 6 billion people in the world, and there are 380 million people who don't have God's Word. There are organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators that work and send missionaries to different countries to translate the Bible into various languages. I heard one speak somewhat recently. Her name was Marilyn Laszlo, and she was sent to a village in Papua New Guinea. Not only did this village of people not have the Bible in their language, their language had never been written at all. So this woman, Marilyn Laszlo, goes to the village, breaks in, to their culture, and starts to learn their language. Learns it well enough to speak it, then learns it well enough to actually document it and write it on paper. And then once their language is on paper, she starts to translate their native language, or the Bible, into their native language. This took her 20 years to do. The village was on the banks of a river. And the day that the Bibles were to arrive in canoes, the natives of that village in Papua New Guinea that Marilyn Laszlo had ministered to lined the riverbanks. And as they saw the canoes paddling down the river with boxes of the New Testament, they chanted in unison, Here comes the Word of God. Here comes the Word of God. I tell you this evening, Luke 7, verse 36. Here comes the Word of God. This is a narrative story with basically three characters. Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinful woman. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town... Learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Those debts aren't comparable, by the way. Simon replied, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Your word is the absolute truth, and we confess that. But whether we confess it or not, it's true. I pray that you would show us who you are this evening and that your character and your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've been thinking lately about the way the world communicates. The world communicates particularly through advertising, through the richest people, through the most famous people, through the most beautiful people. If you want to advertise a credit card, use Jerry Seinfeld. He's the funniest guy that we know in the world today. If you want to advertise makeup, use the most beautiful woman, especially in magazines when they can use the airbrush stuff on those women. If you want to advertise sports, some type of shoes, use Kobe Bryant, one of the best basketball players in the world. If you want to advertise golf, use Tiger Woods. Now, he's somebody that everybody can relate with. You know, when you're watching that Tiger Woods golf commercial, and those of you that play golf can totally appreciate it, is he's just kind of bumping that pitching wedge ball up and down. That he, you know how many times it took him to film that commercial? Two. He's just popping it, and then in the air hits his pitching wedge about 200 and something yards. The world communicates through people like Tiger Woods. And I don't know about you, but it's a little frustrating to me. Because when it comes to golf, for example, I can't relate with Tiger Woods. And when it comes to beauty, I'm not real sure any of us can relate with Nikki Taylor. Or when it comes to comedy or money or fame, who can relate with Jerry Seinfeld? Hardly anybody. See, the world communicates in those ways, but God doesn't communicate like that. God doesn't use the richest people. God doesn't use the most famous people. God communicates in a way that is completely opposite than the world. And so the question that I want to ask this evening is, how do we love Christ? What does it look like to love Christ? Well, God's going to show us what it looks like to love Christ. Not through someone who's famous. Not through someone who's rich. Not through someone who's well-respected. Not even from a preacher. Not from a Pharisee. But we're going to learn how to love Christ through a prostitute because God communicates differently than the world does. There's basically two truths that Christ teaches in this passage in Luke 7. One, and they both have to do with the two people, one a Pharisee, the super saint, the holy of holies, at least in his mind, and his group of friends' minds, and the prostitute, the woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. They had one thing in common, and then they had a few differences. The one thing that they both had in common, their similarity, was that they were both sinners. It doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how well known you are, doesn't matter how many spiritual hoops you jump through, you're still a sinner. And so this Pharisee, in all his glory, was a sinner. And this woman, in all her rags, was a sinner too, and they had that in common. My question to you is, do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do I know myself to be a sinner? Because we all are. St. Augustine, commenting on a verse out of Proverbs, says, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. You want to have knowledge? What is is it to have knowledge? What is true wisdom? It's to know oneself to be a sinner. Because you see, if we don't know ourselves to be sinners, then whatever we think we know, we don't know at all. Because the beginning of knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord immediately leads us to know ourselves to be sinners. We've seen this all throughout history. Many of the mighty men, the church forefathers, knew this. Samuel Rutherford, Who was part of the Westminster Assembly, wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this If Scotland could see in my heart, no one would ever ask or care about me ever again. Samuel Rutherford said that. Jonathan Edwards says, I deserve the lowliest place in hell. Jonathan Edwards, hi, I'm the Great Awakening. He knew himself to be a sinner. Paul the Apostle. Christ came to save sinners of who I am, the chief. Pascal, the mathematician, philosopher, and believer, said if we could only see into each other's hearts, no man on the face of the earth would have more than four friends. If we really knew each other, it would be scary, but we must know ourselves. I think our problem is this. I think we know ourselves to be sinners. We know Scripture well enough to know that, yes, I'm a sinner. But we don't know to the degree that we are sinners. Apollo 13, no doubt one of the most profound, significant events in American history. 1974, Apollo 13 was launched to the moon, and it was made popular just a few years ago by the movie Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks. And there's a great phrase from Apollo 13 that everybody knows. We all know it, and you could go ask a 10-year-old, and he would probably know it too. And the famous phrase from that event in history is, Houston, we've got a problem. But another significant phrase from that same event that's true is not as famous as that one. Jim Lovell said that from on board the ship. Gene Krantz at Mission Control in response to Houston, we've got a problem, said... Tell me what you've got on the spacecraft that's still good. Because what he was implying is, I know you've got a problem, but if you can tell me what's still good, we'll piece the scraps together and we'll get you home. I think we approach our life in the same way. We know we've got a problem. But we also think that there's enough good within this spacecraft of ourself to get us home. And that's just not the case. Because there's nothing good on the spacecraft. And unless we know that, then we don't know anything. We must not try to fix what is on our spacecraft. We must totally abandon our spacecraft and put our faith and our life in another one. That is Jesus Christ. Because we have nothing good within us. Isaiah tells us that over and over. In fact, your righteous deeds, the best things you can do are nothing but filthy rags. The similarity the prostitute and the preacher had was that they were both sinners. But only one really knew that. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Or do you look at people like Jeffrey Dahmer that get converted on death row that died, by the way, with a Steve Brown book on his bedside table in a cell? You look at him and say, oh, how convenient. Kill people your whole life. And then when, right when it's about, you're about to die, say, profess faith in Jesus Christ. You know what happens when we do that? We're basically saying, you don't deserve grace, and I do. The whole point of grace is that nobody deserves it. The similarity they had was that they were both sinners but the real lesson is to be learned through their differences, by a lesson of contrast. You know how your kids, for example, say, Mom, or daughters can say this to you. Mom, should I wear this dress? Yeah, you should wear that. It looks great. Okay, I'm wearing this one. It's always the opposite. Christ, many times, teaches through contrast. The first thing we see different about this woman and the Pharisee is that the way they looked at Christ, they looked at Christ in totally different ways. We see how Simon looked at Christ in verse 39. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, cynically, skeptically, if this man were a prophet, he would know what's going on here. Ironically enough, as he's accusing Jesus of not being a prophet, of not knowing all things, Christ reads his mind because you see that he did not say this to Christ. He said it to himself. And then Jesus answers him. That's kind of funny that he's accusing him of not knowing things, not being a prophet, and he reads his mind. But how did the woman look at Christ? The woman understood what happened just a few verses earlier in Luke 5, verse 32, when Christ said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. She looked at Christ as one who could save her. She was desperately needy, And she came to the one who could save those that were desperately needy. She knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners. We see that just a few verses before in Luke 7, 30 through 35, when Christ is actually characterized as a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He wasn't a drunkard, but I will tell you, he was a friend of sinners, and this woman knew that. She knew she was a sinner, and she needed a friend but she needed more than a friend. She needed a Savior, and that's why she showed up at the Pharisee's house that day. She looked at Christ as the one who had the power to give her a clean slate. Martin Luther speaks of what his life was like before he became a Christian, as he is a Christian. He's a believer, and he's looking back, and he says, this is what my life used to be like. And he had a vision, by the way, that depicted his life before he came to Christ. And he envisioned his life as if he was walking around all the time with a blackboard right above his head and there was a hand that would write everything he ever did wrong on the blackboard. Can you imagine how maddening that would be? Every thought, every deed, every word that you've ever done wrong written on a blackboard. Can you imagine that blackboard? Can you imagine how maddening that would be? Luther's life was mad before he knew Christ. But he said the vision continued and following the hand that was writing all the on the blackboard, came another hand, but this hand was nail-scarred, and it had a blood-soaked rag, and it wiped his slate clean. And then Luther knew what freedom was. He knew that Christ and Christ alone had the power to give him a clean slate. In fact, one preacher said, it's not only that we have a clean slate, it's as if God took our slate and broke it into pieces. We no longer have a slave. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord does not count against him. What a glorious thing. Do you look at Christ as, the, as one who has power to forgive all our sins? This can be played out in our prayer life, by the way. What does your prayer life look like? Mine's pretty weak. In fact... Many times I'm afraid to ask God for things, to do things, and for people's salvation because I'm thinking, you can't do that. We don't understand the power that comes through the gospel in Jesus Christ. But this woman did. They looked at Christ very differently. Not only did they look at Christ differently, but they looked at themselves differently. And they understood the degree to which they had been forgiven. Differently. Because you see, if you know yourself to be a sinner and to have a debt that you can never pay, then you're going to realize when you're forgiven, you've been forgiven much. The text tells us that he who has been forgiven little loves little. And that's somewhat of a figure of speech because there's no such thing as little forgiveness when it comes to salvation. Any bit of salvation, saving grace is much forgiveness. And when we realize who we are and just how guilty we are and we're confronted with our sin then we will realize how much we've been forgiven. We will understand the degree to which we have been forgiven. She understood that. He did not. There's a band that I'm sure none of you know not because you're out of the loop but they're not really even in the loop. They're more of an underground band and these men are Christians but they're not in the Christian market of music. The lead singer of the band is named Bill Maloney and in fact he's a member of a PCA house church. They're from Athens, Georgia and he's one of the greatest lyricists that I've ever read. He's got a great understanding of man's total depravity, our sinfulness, our degree that we need to be forgiven maybe more so than I've ever heard anyone outside of Scripture speak of. One of the lyrics to one of his songs called Motel Room says he sings I could rape you with a single look and kill you with a glance of course he's coming in on Matthew 5 but have you ever thought about that men that we can rape women with a single look or girls you can kill others with just a glance that's how sinful we are that is how much of a need we have for forgiveness do you recognize the degree to which you've been forgiven if you're in Christ and if you're not in Christ do you recognize the degree to which you need to be forgiven it's not something you can fix it's something that we must cast ourselves before the feet of Christ as we see this woman did See, Christianity, the gospel, is basically about two things. It's about recognizing your sin and about recognizing your Savior. But it's really about recognizing those things, not perfectly, but accurately. We must accurately understand that we're desperately sinful. Not fully, there's no way we can understand the full extent of our sin. But we also must accurately understand God's saving grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. Not fully, there's no way we can grasp that, but truly We must understand those two things, and if we don't understand those two things, then we really don't understand the gospel. The woman understood the gospel. She realized how much she needed to be forgiven. Because you see, when we realize how much we needed to be forgiven, and we have been forgiven, we will forgive others in that way. Jonathan Edwards had a principle that he operated by. He said we will treat others in the way we think God treats us. Pretty convicting, huh? Parents, your children, for example. Your children obviously know you're a sinner. But how often do you admit that verbally and say, you know, I mess up. I'm just as in need of God's grace as you are. But if we're always so judgmental to others, it's because we think God is judgmental to us. And He's just not. God deals with us lovingly and unconditionally. And that's how we're to deal with others, graciously. They looked at Christ different. The degree which they understood their forgiveness was different. And lastly, they received a different benediction. If you can look in your text, in verse 48, Christ says, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see him say nothing to Simon the Pharisee. But he gives a gracious closing to this woman. But what we see here is not really the full understanding of what Christ said to her. Because what we see in our Bibles right here, go in peace, is the equivalent of what people would say if they were passing on the street. Go in peace. Go in peace or if they were leaving each other, go in peace. What Christ said to this woman is a little more profound. What he actually said to her was go into peace. You know when they said go into peace in their culture? At a funeral, when the coffin of a believer was passing by, they would say, go into peace. So Christ gives her the assurance of salvation. There was closing When he tells you, your sins are forgiven, go into peace. The similarity they had was the fact that they were sinners. They looked at Christ differently, though. They understood their forgiveness differently, and they received a different benediction. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know we're all in the same boat? We're all in need of grace? I'll close with a story that is familiar to some. I know it is because Dr. Young's told it from the pulpit even recently, but it's so good, I can't afford not to tell it, and it's so applicable that we've got to hear it, and good stories are worth repeating. There's my justification. Tony Campolo, a, really a madman preacher. There's so many stories that could not be told in public about Tony Campolo. You would agree with about 60% of what he says and does but that's 60%. It's pretty solid and it's always challenging. Campolo was in Honolulu, Hawaii doing some speaking. Time zones are different. Campolo wakes up at odd hours of the morning as he's there. One morning, he wakes up at about 3 o'clock in the morning. doesn't have anything to do. He's sleepless, sitting in bed, so he just decides to get out of his hotel room and wander the streets of downtown Honolulu, Hawaii. As he's wandering the streets of downtown Honolulu, Hawaii, he stumbles into, well, not really stumbles into, but just kind of comes across this nasty old diner. There's not much open at 3 o'clock in the morning in downtown Honolulu, Hawaii. So he stumbles into this diner, and he just kind of sits down in there. He's having a cup of coffee, and he just starts to describe how nasty the diner is. And you can kind of imagine if you've ever been in some nasty diner, especially at 3 o'clock in the morning. And he orders something to eat, and I think he talks about the owner giving him a donut just barehanded right off the shelf and just the nastiness of the diner. And he's just kind of sitting in there, minding his own business. The door flings open, and here comes a group of women. This group of women have just gotten off their night's work. And we could describe this group of women as, our scripture does, women who had lived a sinful life in that town. These women were prostitutes. And so they started talking about you know, their work that night. And you can only imagine what they were saying as they discussed the evening's business. And Campolo, you know, even for him, I'm sure, was somewhat shocked at what they were saying he heard overheard one of them say tomorrow's my birthday and all the other girls started ragging on her they said oh who cares about your birthday nobody cares about your birthday they end up leaving tony talks to the owner harry and he says are those women coming here every night harry says yep every night 3 30 on the nose they're here he says what about that one who said it's her birthday tomorrow he said yep that's agnes she's here every night he says, i got an idea what if we throw a birthday party for agnes Harry, the owner, starts to get excited. He pulls his wife out of the back, and they're all starting to make the plans. She's going to make the cake. Harry's going to get the diner ready, and Campola's going to bring some decorations and stuff for Agnes, the prostitute's birthday party, the next morning. Sure enough, 3 o'clock the next morning, everybody's getting ready inside the diner. There's some other people in there now, too. Sure enough, 3.30, the door swings open, and here comes Agnes and all her prostitute friends and everybody yells, Happy birthday, Agnes! Happy birthday. She's overtaken with joy by the display of affection for her. They bring the cake out of the back with the candles lit. Blow out the candles, Agnes! Blow out the candles! She's sobbing so bad she cannot even catch a breath to blow out the candles. Finally, they get the candles out. They're getting ready to cut the cake. And she says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you cut the cake, can I please take this cake home and show it to my mom? I've never had a birthday cake before. Campolo describes her leaving that diner holding the cake as if it was the Holy Grail. She leaves. The rest of them are still there. and Campolo talks about what a precarious situation he was stuck in. Downtown Honolulu, Hawaii, 3.30 in the morning, a diner full of prostitutes and a preacher. He said, I didn't know what to do, so I just decided to pray. I prayed for the salvation of the people there. I prayed for Agnes's salvation. And after I said amen, Harry, the owner leaned over to him and he said, wait a minute. You didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. That's what kind of church Christ came to establish. There's going to be a lot of preachers and a lot of prostitutes in heaven. We need to realize that now and be challenged by the display of affection from this woman in Luke 7. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we start to contemplate your love for us, it's easy to become overwhelmed. To think that you have paid in full Everything we ever have done wrong, everything we are doing, and everything we ever will do is not counted against us. May we understand your love for us more fully. And may we understand our own sin more fully, which will just again lead us back to your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you. It's great to be here.